Uh, I am not an artist. I'm not the son of an artist, but I do appreciate uh, art. And uh, there were a few periods of time in my younger years when I had a growing interest in drawing, sketching. And uh, I had invested in the appropriate pencils, uh, paper, and I was working on this new craft. And one of the inspirations for me was uh, the painter, the artist Thomas Kincaid, very popular artist, uh, known as the painter of light. And I recall one Christmas shopping uh, for pencils, paper, and, and saw in the mall uh, there was an art studio with numerous paintings, including a number of them uh, by uh, Thomas Kincaid. And, and if you know his work, you know one of his main themes are these splendid, bright, almost heavenly landscapes. And when you look at his paintings, whether it's of a peaceful stream or a cabin in the meadows, uh, you, you think to yourself, I want to I live there. I want to put myself in that picture. It's so peaceful and wonderful. But one painting I speci- specifically remember uh, not only had this peaceful, serene look, but a passage of Scripture was at the bottom of this uh, particular painting. And the Scripture was a passage that uh, Elder Richard read uh, just earlier. It was from Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. They are new every morning. Reading that text out of context or very easily in isolation might lead one to connect such a scene a peaceful scene that Kincaid draws or paints with those words. But that connection would be grossly misleading. Jeremiah, likely the author of Lamentations, including those words in chapter 3, writes not surrounded by a scene of peace or stillness or ease or delight. He writes those words as a lament. It's in the context of the city of God, Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians in 586, 587 B.C. And it paints in vivid detail the ruin of that city. Pictures including uh, pictures of starvation, pictures of death. It's a picture that, uh, that appears hopeless, very despairing. But it's in the midst of that that there's a window to the light, which is chapter 3, particularly verses 22 and following. And it is my prayer and my hope that this window serves for, for us or becomes a window for us moving into 2023. Uh, Lamentations 3, 22 and following. So I would encourage you to turn there. Lamentations 3. Beginning at verse 22, I'm going to read through 33. Lamentations 3, beginning at verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. 
Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. These words come in the middle of a book we know as Lamentations. It's a book of lament. And we know biblical lament is not the same as mere expressions of sorrow. People all around the world, to varying degrees, will express sorrow and sadness. But biblical lament is doing something with that sorrow. It's turning that sorrow into the form or expression of prayer unto God. So lament is has a very vertical thrust to it. Ultimately, in lament, we are turning to Jesus Christ because Christ stands in the gap between darkness, pain, affliction, suffering, and the promises that our God makes to his people. And part of what makes the book of Lamentations very powerful and potent is not only the substance, it's not just the words that we read, but the way it's structured. This is a book that's five chapters in length. Each chapter is a lament, a kind of melancholy dirge or a funeral message or oration. And the book is filled with acrostics. That's a a central literary device that is used. So, for example, if you look at your Bible, in chapters 1 and 2 of this book, you'll notice it's 22 verses in length, each, each of those chapters. Those verses or lines, each one, correspond to the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 of chapter 1 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 2 of chapter 1, the next letter. That's true of both chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 4, skipping chapter 3, in chapter 4, it is also an acrostic, but instead of each new verse or line moving on to the next letter, it's two lines in a row, or two verses in a row, Two lines in a row that have the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then lines three and four, the next letter, then lines five and six, the next letter. So it's kind of intensified. If we were to have lamentations on a scroll and rolled it out, I'm pretty confident our eyes would probably move toward the center by way of structure. Even if we didn't know Hebrew, we would start to see a pattern. And our eyes would move toward chapter three. Because not only is it an acrostic, but you'll notice it's not 22 lines or verses, it's tripled. It's 66. Instead of each verse starting with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the same letter begins three verses in a row before a new trio of verses begins the next letter. You can, you can even start to see it in, in English, some of the commonalities in these groups of three. So what this does is create sort of an intensified triplet acrostic. And this would have been helpful not only for teaching purposes and memorization, but it's there also to give emphasis so that our Lord, through Jeremiah, likely the author, is wanting us to give our attention to the center of this book. So if Lamentations were a painting of a mountain, chapter 3, 22 to 24, would be toward the mountain peak the crescendo, the emphasis. It's where greatest attention is to be given. 
Everything's building up to this point. So it's the summit of the whole book. And you can sense the summit by seeing two contrasting passages in chapter 3, both related to hardship and suffering or redemption from it. So if you look at verse 18 of chapter 3, we read, My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. But then you have in verse 58 of chapter 3, you have taken, you have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. So we see the contrast. The, her, the first half of the chapter is filled with darkness and this sense of hopelessness. The second with emerging and growing levels of trust and confidence. So I want us to consider a little further this, this contrast. First of all, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because of his mourning, his tears over the, the falling of God's people and of Jerusalem. And so he feels at times that he's coming really to the end of his rope. He's without hope. Uh, we read in chapter 2, verse 11, My eyes are spent with weeping. Again, in 3.18, it sounds in a way like he's given up. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Have you ever experienced that? Your faith, your hope, seems to be perishing. I know I have. It could be due to an external circumstance. Relationally, could be a divorce, could be cancer, could be the death of a child. It could be peer pressure. It could be an intellectual struggle, feeling like you're coming to the end of being able to reconcile this Christian faith with how you understand the world to be or ought to be. It could be internal, your own struggle to be faithful, to measure up, to follow sincerely after the Lord. You feel increasingly like an imposter. These are real. The people of God experience them. Today, as we know, is January 1st. I don't know if you've yet received the January newsletter or if you have, whether you've looked at it. But when you do, when you do, my article begins by asking whether you remember the text of the first sermon I preached here at PCC four years ago to the day. I don't expect you to remember that text. But it was a very important text and still is uh, for me. I was very intentional about choosing it because I believe it is a central window through which we are called to live our Christian life and carry out the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Paul's words. It relates very much to Lamentations 3. I'll read it. It's 2 Corinthians 1. Just three verses, 8 to 10. Paul to the church in Corinth. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, recalling a time in his, in his, in his ministry. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, 
That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Whatever the affliction or suffering or persecution, it was so great that Paul was convinced death was at hand. No more hope for life physically. He believed he would die. But how does Paul understand here suffering's purpose? He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. On Him we have set our hope. So, hard things, suffering, becomes a window, an opportunity through which to see reliance and hope in the Lord. Very similarly, through chapter 3 of Lamentations, Jeremiah feels he has come to his end. And you can get an amplification of this in the first verses of chapter 3. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness like the dead of long ago. Part of what's important here is that the Scriptures don't simply paint a rosy-colored path for the life of faith. The Scripture in this way is bold or gutsy. It will go to those very dark places. And if the Scriptures go there, it is okay for us to go there. To find ourselves there at times. I remember a particular situation or episode that occurred while in seminary. It was, in fact, during chapel. While I was at Reformed Seminary. We had chapel a couple times a week. Uh, There we were, fellow seminarians, sharing the same theology, uh, same calling under... Uh, enjoying wonderful fellowship together. We had sat under the teaching and, and preaching for that chapel service. We then responded. We stood and we began to sing. And about midway through that hymn, there was a, a growing noise, a, a voice that began to emerge louder and louder. Uh, but the voice was no longer fitting in with the rest. The noise began to turn to shrieks, cries. There were even vulgarities it began to become quite uncomfortable. And I looked across the chapel room, and it was someone in particular I had gotten to know. And he was in anguish. Uh, He had just lost his younger brother. His parents recently divorced, and he suffered from various mental illnesses. I remember taking him uh, to pick up prescriptions on a number of occasions. And he was clearly kind of coming undone. Now, we might easily say that his behavior was inappropriate, unfitting. But the point is, God will go to those places with his people. He will meet his people in those places. Chapter 3, verse 20. My soul continually remembers it, the affliction, and is bowed down within me. So the good news is that if and when we see that kind of darkness... When you're at the bottom, God will meet His people there. 
I love the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It's one of the first doctrines I learned uh, coming into the, the, to the Reformed tradition. But sometimes I believe it can be used, or rather misused, as a cover or protective from God's people actually bearing their hearts. Oh, that's just the way it's supposed to be. That's, that's, that was God's intention. That was God's plan. Well, that's true. But it doesn't stop Jeremiah. It doesn't stop the psalmist from crying out with their hearts unto the Lord. God values the hearts of His people with sincerity, crying out before Him with those hard questions. How long? When, Lord? What for? God values that honesty. He sees it and He works with His people. But here's where the turning point comes in Lamentations. It comes actually in the verse just prior to our text. Verse 21. He says, But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. His calling something to mind is what starts to lead or fill him with hope. Uh, it, it's, been, it's been said, we may hear our hearts say, it's hopeless, but we should argue back. That's what Jeremiah is doing. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I see going on around me. But this I call to mind, thus I have hope. Or yet I dare to hope. And that language of call to mind, or some translations remember, are words in Hebrew that have to do with the heart, the essence of what a person sincerely believes. So Jeremiah is just not reminding himself of what is true. This is what he believes in his core. And he's drawing from that. What he believes about his God. And so this is the shift in the chapter. Lament dares to hope when things are hard calling to mind what we truly believe about our God. It's a prayer of faith amidst potential fears. But this I call to mind. Those words to me, very practically here, cry out devotion. Devotional time. Time in private worship. Quiet time, as I was taught growing up. That time alone consistently and regularly with the Lord who has called you into His grace. Of the small number of very practical foundations or or pillars that have provided peace for me amidst storms or spiritual stability amidst the fears and doubts that can come is a frequent, daily, private time alone with the Lord. His Word open to speak to us as His people and the sharing of our hearts unto Him in prayer. It is a necessity for continuing to grow. This I call to mind. When do you call these things to mind for you? When does that happen? One of my brothers, my middle brother, gifted me a a book for Christmas. I jumped right in. I'm just about done. Called The Perfect Mile. And uh, it recalls the effort of three young men in the 1950s after the 52 Olympics who attempt to break, for the first time ever in history, the four-minute mile. And the American runner's coach, uh, Bill Easton, once says to his young athlete regarding his workouts on the track, he says, you can't flirt with the track. You must marry it. You can't flirt 
with private worship. Or you're flirting with God. Our life with God is much more than that. He has bound himself to us. A union, a bond in blood. He desires us, his people. He goes after his people with love and truth. And so he is calling to mind truths. This is what Jeremiah does. What are the truths that he calls to mind? I call these truths to mind. I call these things to mind. Thus I have hope. One, there in verse 22 and following, is the mercy of God. The fact that the mercy of God never comes to an end. It is unending. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. That steadfast love is that hesed in Hebrew. God's covenant faithfulness, His commitment. It's a unique love because it exists not because of the object toward which it is directed, but because of the very essence and character of God. I think it's very similar to that New Testament language of agape love, that charity, that mercy without condition upon us. Its motivation is not first in the object. Remember John, the Apostle's words in 1 John, God is love. Before God made anything to love, He is love. Among the three persons of the triune God, the Lord lives in loving communion. When He created the world and He created you and me, He didn't then begin to love. He simply had an object or new object to direct His already existing love. He is love. He's going to love. You can count on it. In C.S. Lewis's work, The Problem of Pain, he says, we were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well-pleased. Our highest activity must be response, not initiative. To experience the love of God in a true and not an illusory form is therefore to experience it as our surrender to His demand, our conformity to His desire. It is true, the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy 6 is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you cannot love the Lord your God without first receiving His love. And it is who God is. We remember Jesus' words, unless I wash you, feet of His disciples, you can have no part with Me. You must receive the mercy and love of God, and it is unending. So we see the unending mercy of God. We also see in this chapter, Lamentations 3, the significance of waiting. We heard those words. Verse 25 of chapter 3, The Lord is good to those who wait. It's good that one would wait quietly for God's salvation. Think about waiting. When you're in the midst of waiting, uh, it really feels like a waste of time. When you're in the midst of it, it can often feel like a waste of time. What's the point of this waiting in line, in traffic, for this person, for the Lord, to work in some particular way? What do I do while waiting? 
And that's the point. It doesn't feel like you're doing anything, but this is central to our Christian faith because waiting is a form of active trust. At least waiting rightly. To a reminder that, that God is working. Waiting is a reminder that someone else must work, not merely us, namely our Lord. He is at work in His ways, in His timing. Trust Him. We can't see it uh, very well in the English, but verses 25 to 27, one of the trios, uh, the verses on waiting, each line begins with the Hebrew word, which we translate good. So it's good is the Lord to those who wait. Good it is that one should wait quietly. Good it is for a youth to bear discipline. If you're in a season of waiting, don't waste this season. Don't waste this season. Trust in the Lord. Look, He's teaching us. He's looking to shape us in this time and season of waiting. Finally, we see the truth that God is good all the time. He's good all the time. Verse 33. For the Lord does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, God's first instinct is not to punish or discipline. He only does so when His patience is not leading to repentance for us. It's because His heart is good. He is good. My first pastoral internship while in seminary was at a Presbyterian church in Florida. And uh, every Sunday morning, the pastor would stand up, welcome the people, and his first words would be, God is good, and all the people would respond, all the time. And then he would say, all the time. And they would say, God is good. God is good. All the time. I didn't know how that was going to go. (laughs) Very good. So here's Jeremiah. He's in the midst of the temple's rubble. Uh, The city has been besieged. The people are exiled. But he is able to say and believe, God is good. God is good. That's what lament does. It leans with trust upon God because It knows His character to be good. He has purposes behind every trial, behind every tear. And most of the time, we don't know why things are unfolding the way they do. But we trust. We trust in the Lord our God because He's good. And we see His goodness most powerfully here at this table of which we partake. Here at the table, we can say the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we as Your people desire to trust more deeply, to know more of Your goodness and grace. Lord, we thank You that You provide uh, this window for Your people in the midst of all kinds of circumstances. A window uh, to see the light of Your never-ending mercy. 
how good you are beyond our full uh, comprehension that, that you would pour out your heart to us, O Lord. That you might make us to be recipients of this mercy and grace. Your, your loving and saving grace in Jesus Christ. Continue to work in us what is pleasing in your sight. Bind us together, O Lord, by your mercy and love. And Lord, may we reflect it in our own lives, uh, one to another. We, ca- we pray that you would feed us, fuel us, strengthen us, O Lord, both by your word and this supper that we share together, uh, one bread and one cup, as we come um, to you, our, 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 our gracious Heavenly Father. For this we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.